This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. It's no secret that the black community tops the list of groups afflicted by hypertension, stroke, diabetes, heart disease, kidney failure, and cancer. What the statistics do not show is the pain, misery, and despair that these conditions create, not only for the individual, but also for family and friends. As an African-American doctor, Dr. Richard Walker has studied these conditions among his patients for many years. Now in his new book, Black Health Matters, Dr. Walker offers a number of common sense ways to prevent, manage, and possibly eliminate these killers, turning the tide of African-American health. And he not only provides us with a construct for thought leadership and population health equity, he practices this type of care at his home-based primary care practice in Houston, Texas, TVP Care. Dr. Walker spent considerable time in researching the health and healthcare journey of African captives into slavery. And he understands what current African-Americans need to do now to survive nutritionally and culturally. He's on a mission to overcome the chronic ill health and early death that is so pervasive in black communities. Most importantly, however, Dr. Walker is a leader in the value movement that believes traditional medicine should be merged with lifestyle medicine. He understands that African-Americans can turn their health around by understanding and incorporating better nutrition, nutritional supplements, exercise, and regular healthcare checkups into their lives. Well, this is such an important episode with a great guest, and I just appreciated the opportunity to to really speak to someone about these important healthcare issues that are impacting the African-American community. Now, without further ado, I wanted to hand over this week's episode to Dr. Richard Walker in this very important discussion about Black Health Matters and how we may go about improving population health equity within African-American communities in this race to value. Well, Dr. Walker, welcome to Race to Value. We're so happy to have you on. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here. I'm uh, so grateful because of what you are doing and how it relates to the community at large in terms of getting to something that has been uh, unfortunately missing 
and the history of healthcare, and that is the use of the word value. Well, that means a lot coming from you, Dr. Walker. And, you know, we really look to you as one of the leading innovators in the value movement. There's such a great story to tell, and you have such an innate understanding from a historical perspective, as well as the current environment and helping us and our listeners navigate some of these important changes that need to take place in our country. So we appreciate the support and we also greatly admire the work that you do. And, you know, as I was thinking about how to start our conversation today, I thought we would go back to the very beginning in your life. I mean, you had this upbringing in Spanish Harlem in the 50s and 60s, and I know that spurred you to the practice of medicine. And you saw early on in life how much diseases like diabetes, kidney failure, and heart disease affected people in your local neighborhood. And as I understand, you were dismayed how poor health among the Black population was such an epidemic at the time. And you know, one that people almost accepted, you know, just like it was a predetermined fate and that made you angry. And you decided to become a physician to really help people take the steps to become healthier and avoid the most serious disease that plagues a higher number of African-American people. So Dr. Walker, can you describe your upbringing and how that influenced you to become a physician leader seeking solutions for improved population health outcomes? And what diseases have you seen, particularly in the Black community, that that population is most susceptible to? Eric, thank you. That, that's uh, such a foundational question, and it, it shapes just about everything that I do and the way I do it, and of course, the reason why I do it. Going back to Spanish Harlem, most people may not know where that is. It's in the northeast section of Manhattan. And there's the segment of Manhattan that's called Harlem. But on that east side section, it is a mixture of predominantly African American and uh, Puerto Rican families. That population, when I was growing up, had the highest murder rate for African American males from the age of 16 to 36. And it was also the community uh, that was plagued by uh, heroin. And uh, I would say 90% of the friends that I grew up with were murdered on heroin or in the joint. And one of the things that was most striking that I really didn't appreciate until I moved away from the community, but when you are in the community, one of the things that we realize is that the men always seem to be disappearing, and they were disappearing for one reason or, or another. It was incarceration, drugs, or hospitalization. The incarceration, we understood for a lot of different reasons, which I won't go into because uh, it takes us away from the thrust of the, the topic today, but the hospitalization was really, it was a mystery. And for the most part, I would say the majority of the hospitalizations were because of what was called the sugar. And the sugar is diabetes, but no one knew it as diabetes. It was the sugar and no one really understood what the sugar was. We knew it had something to do with 
eating too many sweets. At least that's what we thought. And then it was uh, the, the real thing about the diabetes was that it was almost like this, this ghost that hung around the community because it seemed like it just came from nowhere. And suddenly the fathers were in the hospital. They were going blind. They had amputations. They were sick because of this and that. And it was just something that, that's accepted. The unfortunate aspect of that in 2022 is that the misunderstanding about type 2 diabetes still persists today in the uh, African-American community. And that is that we believe that diabetes and most of the other chronic diseases that plague us that our legacy diseases are genetic, when in fact they aren't. They are environmental. They are a function of a disparity in the delivery of healthcare, which is inequity. And here we are all these years, these many years later, we are still subject to the same thing. I wrote a book and the thrust of my book was about becoming aware of the things that are in your environment that you have control over. And one of the first things is your knowledge. What is it about these diseases? Well, the first I've already mentioned, they are not genetic. They are not inherent in our community. Well, then the next question is, well, why do they exist at such a high level and with such devastating effects? Is because we don't understand the disease. There are the inequities of the delivery of healthcare. There's a lack of understanding or the application of the social determinants of health. And I can go on and on, but it's programs like this that really brings things to the surface where we can intelligently and systematically dismantle those aspects of a ongoing problem in communities that are underserved. And these are the kind of things that as I moved out of the community, went into the military, I had the opportunity to look back and then begin the process of recognizing and thinking about, wow, where are we and, and what, what has happened and why aren't we solving this? Dr. Walker, I, I want to talk to you more about your fascinating career as a physician and a population health advocate, where you've been intentionally bringing these things to the surface for systematically and systemically trying. For two decades of practicing traditional medicine, you practiced environmental and functional medicine for 15 years after that. And for several years, you had a talk radio show in New York City that provided information about wellness through nutrition, supplements, nutraceuticals environmental and age management medicine I mean, throughout your medical career, your goal has been to tell people how they can avoid the illness of chronic disease and take responsibility for their own health, especially in black communities where very profound disparities exist. And over your career, you've seen your approach work, but in 2020, during the pandemic and after the brutal murder of George Floyd, you had this idea to write a new book, Black Health Matters. And it was to address all the main chronic health problems that affect African-Americans so that you could reach an even wider audience. 
I'd love to have you share a brief overview of your new book and how it can be used to prevent, manage, and possibly eliminate these killers and turn the tide of African-American health. Daniel, thank you uh, for that question. One of the things that I have to confess to is that the order of my life and the order of my professional life was not a linear course. Almost everything I did was the curiosity of why things weren't working, or I stumbled into that, or I met this person who influenced me this way or that way. None of the things that I've done was because I said, gee, was, this is a good idea. I should do this. And, you know, I think I'll try and become famous because this has to be done. It was all situational. Going back to when I wrote Black Health Matters was because a friend of mine who is a nurse who is not African-American, she's white, uh, she called and said, you know, with all this stuff going on about George Floyd and the mantra that was going on about Black Lives Matter, she said, you, you need to write a book about Black Health Matters. I said, wow, what a great idea. The reason why that was so profound for me was that in looking back over the course of my life and the things that I mentioned about my childhood, also about my mother in the early uh, 2000s, my mother was a victim of the current healthcare model uh, where because of the lack of, of the value approach, she wound up being hospitalized in the ICU in a coma for six weeks in two consecutive years. And it was because of the healthcare model that we have today. Well, what that does is that that is juxtaposed to all the other things that were happening. And coming back to the situation with Floyd, it was like, how do you reach this community and begin to share and expose and tell the story about what we can do for ourselves without waiting. If you look at the African-American experience, 400 plus years, it's an experience of waiting, waiting to cross the Atlantic from Western Africa, waiting to get the chains off, waiting to be emancipated, then waiting to become a citizen, and waiting for the civil rights movement. It's always about waiting. And so here we were in 2020, still waiting for healthcare to adapt or to recognize that there was a huge problem in a segment of the American population. So when I got the call that I should write that book, I mean, I don't know why I didn't think about doing something like that, but that call stimulated me. It was the epiphany to say, okay, here's the opportunity to make a statement and to begin to educate, teach, demonstrate that we don't need to wait anymore. Now, I wanna make clear that doesn't mean to abandon the healthcare that anyone has, that's foolish. What it means is to take charge of your own life. And to do that, most people believe, and, and this doesn't matter whether you're African-American, Native American, white American, it doesn't matter. 
taking care of your own life means being in charge of the environment that you're in and understanding those root causes that lead to disease. In the African-American community, for the most part, it's about nutrition. If you understand that the kinds of nutrition that we are exposed to, going back to slavery times, the nutrition that we had then was a function of survival. Get what you can, eat what you can, cook what you can, and the consequences of it didn't matter. You weren't getting enough food, and therefore, because of that, you ate whatever you got your hands on. But that didn't go away. It still persists to where we eat poorly. And then we also consume what we call today soul food, which is uh, a, an amalgamation of different cultures. And then we have the soul food, but the soul food, as it was originally, was high in salt, high in fat, low in vitamins and nutrients and all the things that we really need to be healthy. And that was the basis of so much of what's happening to us as a community. When you take that and you combine it to the lack of the social determinants of health, the lack of training, the appropriate training for the healthcare workforce, that you need to understand what are the, some of the differences of the different populations, and this is how you approach it. All those things plus more are a confluence of all the dynamics that contributes to the problem. Therefore, the book was a book about, it's really a how-to book. And that how-to was to take a look at what are those things that you have control of today, where you can't point a finger and say it's because of. Those days have to be over. Let's take charge of, of what we have and what we can do for ourselves. And then partner with your healthcare provider so that you can get the best of both worlds. So the book is really about what are the progenitors of all the chronic diseases and how do I mitigate the effects of those diseases? And since those diseases are not genetic, we have the opportunity to eliminate them, if not control them. And that was the thrust of the book. One other thing about the, about the book, a conversation that almost never occurs in, in the Black community is a conversation about the environment. And when I talk about the environment, I'm speaking about environmental exposure, environmental toxicities. We never talk about the environment of our community, not knowing that underserved communities are the most toxic environments in the country. There are more power plants and coal plants and uh, petrochemical companies in close proximity to the underserved communities than any other community. And those communities don't have the wherewithal to speak out about what's polluting their air, their food, their water, et cetera, et cetera, all of which contributes to the disease process.
Well, Dr. Walker, in your book, you do a really outstanding job in addressing all of the main chronic health problems that affect the African-American community, you know, from obesity and hypertension and diabetes and cardiovascular disease and kidney disease and even dental disease. And you also examine important issues such as aging and environmental health, as you just described. And you also go into a little bit about institutional racism in healthcare. And we're coming to find out more and more in our society, you know, at at an elevated societal level that is pervasive and there are structural barriers that exist and that it creates disparities in the African-American community. And the research has been shown pretty much now irrefutably that If you control for all the variables that may contribute to health disparities like education and income and access to health insurance, that African-Americans do have the worst quality health care of any demographic in the country. But a lot of that is due to the way the system is designed. And, you know, we've seen that there's a disproportional cost burden on black households. There's a general lack of medical facilities surrounding African-American communities, especially in rural areas. We've seen unique challenges with hourly Black workers and keeping their healthcare appointments during the workday. And, and CMS is really thinking about how to address some of these systemic issues in the healthcare system that contribute to these disparities. And the Innovation Center in particular is leading a, an effort to embed health equity as a foundational component of alternative payment models that are such an important part of value-based care. Their thought is if you align the financial incentives, you can create real transformation and equity. So I just wanted to ask you if you were optimistic around this newfound focus on health equity at the federal level, and do you think that'll lead us down a path to ultimately eradicating racial disparities in care once and for all? Eric, thank you. Another great question. I believe that the concept of value-based care is transformational in that I believe it's the first thing that I've seen from any organization or agency that really has the potential of changing the course of healthcare. And value-based care has been or will be able, I hope, it has the potential of changing the focus from healthcare being delivered based upon your zip code and now based upon your value. That's huge. That's a a sea change, a, a quantum leap from where we were with fee for service. Fee for service basically is okay. It's a volume business and whoever can will, but those who can't, sorry. But value-based care is now putting the onus, the fiduciary responsibility on the provider and requiring the provider to do what has to be done in order to take care of an individual or population and help mitigate the cost. And of course, uh, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement now has the quintuple aim. It started out with the triple aim. So it has evolved 
from the triple aim, which was caring for the you know, maximum care for the individual, which uh, is an overriding basis for taking care of a population and controlling costs. Uh, then they added on being able to provide a or be cognizant of the quality of, of life for the provider because the providers are getting out of the business because they too cannot sustain what we see in the old healthcare model. And then we add on the final piece that was recently added on, which is healthcare equity. You have to have all of these things in order to have a robust system that delivers the quality of care that the population that the country deserves. And I believe this sea change initiated by the feds, which, <laughs> you know, there are not a lot of things that we give the feds kudos for, but I think they got this one right. And I have a company and my company which was founded on the issues of my mother. And the basis of the company was if, if I had total control over the healthcare model, what would it look like? Not knowing that when I came up with the vision for my company, that behind the scenes, the thought leaders in the federal government we're coming up with this thing that we now call value-based care. And then as I continue to do the research to advance the company uh, business model, you know, I, I came across, gee, look at this, this is value-based care. Wow, this is talking about the same things that I'm doing in my company. And so it was such a, a great experience, but the, the basis is, we are now going to put the burden of the care on the provider, and it's now a patient-centric business model for everyone. And it's a mandated shift to being patient-centric as opposed to provider-centric. It's mandated. In other words, value-based care is being led by Health and Human Services uh, Agency that's telling everyone, this is what we're going to do. And as you and Daniel know, that when HHS, uh, the Health and Human Services or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, when they speak, everyone listens. So all the private payers, all the providers, everyone is trying to jump online. The problem is value-based care is complex and it is going to be a very heavy lift for independent practitioner, for the small groups to be able to make that shift, but they will have to make the shift no matter what. We will all win, but it's not going to be easy. Dr. Walker, I'm really glad you mentioned your medical practice, TVP Care, and I want to explore it further. It's a real innovator in improving health equity in the Houston, Texas region. You've created a value-based healthcare company that provides re-engineered home-based primary care to seniors and the chronically ill and sick veterans and is in their homes for life. And based on the results from a recent McKinsey and Company study, they estimated that up to $265 billion worth of care that are currently being delivered 
in traditional facilities for Medicare fee-for-service and Medicare Advantage beneficiaries. This represents up to 25% of the total cost of care. All of that could shift to the home by 2025. This is a three to four-fold increase in the current spend at home for this population today. It's a tremendous opportunity given that the clinical infrastructure in communities across the country has been stretched to the breaking point during successive waves of COVID-19 surges exposing workforce shortages, access issues, supply chain challenges, and weaknesses in our public health infrastructure. The pandemic has also upended our system's traditional face-to-face -face treatment modalities and has laid bare the healthcare access gap for at-risk populations. Can you describe more about the TVP care model and share some of the outcomes that your practice has realized with longitudinal comprehensive primary care that helps those patients most in need? Yes, uh, Daniel, thank you. TVP Care is a management service organization. It's a wholly owned subsidiary of the parent company, which is called Walker Healthcare Holdings. And it is the workhorse of our business model. The business model is to be able to provide value-based care services to all the stakeholders in healthcare. I can imagine someone saying, all the stakeholders, who does this guy think he is? I mean, he's, he's going to take on the whole industry. Well, uh, yeah, but not in such a grandiose fashion or egotistical fashion that it might sound like. We are a, or I consider us a disruptor in the healthcare community, mainly because we are doing those things that other entities can't or won't do. Well, what does that mean? I'll give you a, a brief example. When we talk about re-engineered primary care, what we're saying is that primary care can't be about the individual primary care provider, be it a, an internist or a family practitioner and so on. They can't do it alone anymore. Those days are gone. The world is too complex. And now when you take value-based care and you add that on value-based care, as good as it might be, it is complex. And the complexity of value-based care may be its undoing if you don't have someone who can come in and say to the independent practitioner, I've got your back. And what do I mean by that? Well, re-engineered primary care means you have to be, or we put ourselves in the position that when you're asking independent practitioners, small groups, and even payers, regardless of the size of the payer, everybody can't handle what is being requested. But our company was designed based upon one person, which was my mother. And, you know, on our bills, our currency, it says April or Basunum, out of many one. But it started with the vision of what can I do for my mom? Oh, and oh, by the way, if I look at my mother, guess how many other millions of other seniors are out there who are getting the same thing? And the, the question was, okay, what can we do for an individual? That question was one of the major problems that you find in underserved communities. I can't get to the dock. I got to work. The kind of job that I have, I can't ask my boss, can I have the extra time off. You know, I've got to put in my hours. And if I take too much time off, then what's going to happen? I'm going to lose my job. 
Well, if you don't take the time off to go to the doc, the next step is that I don't get the attention of the disease or the condition that I have. And because I didn't get the early attention for that disease, now I have an increase in the chronicity and the severity of the disease. So the next thing that happens, and it's, it, it, it's a pathway, it's a cycle. The next thing that happens is that I'm sick and I got to go to the ED. Well, when I go to the ED, I'm going to miss time at, at work. And now my condition is so much worse that I'm back into that loop where I've got to do the same thing, but it's even more intense. So our question was, what can we do for the individual? The first thing is minimize the gap in access. The single greatest elimination, if you're doing a gap analysis, is put the care in the home. And so that's what we're doing. Well, that's not novel. As a matter of fact, the American healthcare model came out of home care. If you take the care to the home, what does that do? It increases the likelihood of trust. It decreases the burden of grandma having to take the bus and maybe have to transfer from one bus to another bus, eliminates the idea. Well, the other, as a matter of fact, the other day we uh, spoke to a, an 86-year-old woman and the community caregiver asked her, Mrs. Jones, I said, uh, did you go see your doctor today? And she said, honey, it was raining. I just can't go out there in the rain. Well, Mrs. Jones, when was the last time you saw your doctor? Honey, I just don't know. I just, I just can't get there. Well, the question was, well, what if we come to you? She said, Lord, have mercy. That would be wonderful. Well, that's the shift change that we expect to see. And that's just on the patient level. And we do that for life. So once we bring a patient on, that patient is ours for life. And we don't dismiss it on that clinical care component. Well, another reason why that's so dramatic to come in, not just with a provider who's got the stethoscope and the otoscope, but we bring the 21st century technology, remote patient uh, monitoring, chronic care management, of course, the telemedicine, telehealth, the predictive analytics, and all these kind of things. But all of that is directed into our patient care center, where we have coordinators that manage all the aspects so that there's no gaps in who knows what's going on for this particular patient. And the family also knows everything that's happening. Well, what does that do in the next step of what's going on? Well, for our providers, when we talk about re-engineered primary care, they now have a team of people in which they rely upon to help execute those services. So they don't have to do everything. The, for the most complex patients, they don't have to know all the aspects and, and all the details. I've got a whole team of people that assist me with those patients. So when we leave the home and leave the patient, we're not leaving that patient on their own. That patient is being monitored one way or the other 24-7 for the rest of their life. And we are on top of being able to tap in to any variations that are going on with their health. And what does that mean? That means that the 
primary care provider now has a smaller patient panel in which he or she can deliver maximal care, more time spent with the patient. And because of that, not only is the patient gonna have a better outcome, but the provider is gonna have a better quality of life. Add on to that, that we don't hand off the issue of the social determinants of health. People talk about the social determinants of health. And if you read the literature, we now know that the social determinants of health are 80% of one's wellness, 80%. And so what a lot of entities do, they hand that off to another entity. I don't trust anyone in terms of being able to care for our patients. When we take on a patient, we want to take care of them. We want to do it. We're passionate about doing it. So that means that the social determinants of health, we do it. We look at the micro social determinants of health. Well, what is that? Those are all the components within that patient's immediate world, food, medication, transportation, all those things that might affect the quality of the care that they get for their wellness. I'm not talking about disease now. Yes, I know they have disease, but what I want to do is get to the point of wellness. How well can I maintain your quality of life so that we minimize the likelihood of you being admitted to the hospital, having to go to the emergency department, or needing to go to a senior nursing facility? We manage it, and our goal is to make changes within 24 hours of meeting that patient, of seeing that patient in their home. And one small thing that I tell people, uh, just imagine we write a prescription for a patient, but we don't know if the patient can open the prescription bottle. The patient may not have the grip strength to open the medication. Okay, so what good is the medication? Or what if they don't have the income to have gas to get to the pharmacy? So we look at all those things and we begin to manage it immediately. We look at what, what, you know, do you have food in the refrigerator? Do you have garbage that needs to be emptied? Is someone bathing you? So not only do we have providers at the highest level, we also have aides and we're trying to change the narrative for a nurse's aide. Most nurses' aides, they're out on their own. They see one patient to another, they have no umbrella. We have brought that in-house so that now our goal is to put these aides on salary, be part of the overall structure of the TVP care. And we tell and train the, the healthcare providers, when you get a note from an aide, that note is being entered into the record. It needs to be read because that aide is on the front lines of care of that individual. We can't ignore that aide because that aide may not have an MD, a DO, or a nurse practitioner, or an RN. That aide has a passion for taking care of those patients and they care about them. And we have to honor them and honor the patient simultaneously because they're doing what we can't do. Therefore, it is a all-encompassing approach and then if we do those kind of things, having mentioned about decreased admissions, what do you think is happening for the, pay, uh, for the payer? We are tapping into those um, 
pain points of the payer of that 5% of the population. Most people don't realize this. 5% of the population of the United States who are seniors and have three or more chronic diseases, the highest users of the healthcare services are responsible for 50% of the overall healthcare market. That comes out to be $2.8 trillion for a population of people that's less than 4 million. And we can make an, an impact on all of it. I couldn't agree with you more, Dr. Walker, and you're certainly making an impact with your practice. It's so great to hear how you have this interdisciplinary care team that's practicing very advanced reimagined primary care focused on value and equity. You're focusing on those micro social determinants of health and you're reaching patients where they are in the home and the community. Another aspect of your medical practice that I wanted to ask you about was how you're utilizing virtual care. We've seen the impacts that virtual care uh, delivery can have during the COVID-19 pandemic as we've seen this rapid expansion of telemedicine and researchers are now exploring how this emphasis on virtual care can even go about ameliorating some of the racial and ethnic disparities that we uh, see currently in the U.S. healthcare system. And recently, research and anecdotal evidence point to significantly lower levels of telemedicine use among black patients, uh, particularly those over the age of 65 as compared with white patients since the pandemic. And despite the lower rates of telemedicine use among racial and ethnic minorities, other research is showing that seeing standardized patients in a standardized way on a screen might actually reduce provider biases and resulting disparities in care, as I mentioned earlier. And then you have this impact that remote patient monitoring can have on managing chronic disease. And we've seen that there's some promising outcomes associated with RPM and hypertension and diabetes and COPD and CHF and uh, kidney disease. So I wanted to just ask you how your practice was utilizing telemedicine and remote patient monitoring and you know, how has virtual care overall really proven to be a critical advantage within your practice for treating at-risk and elderly patients? Eric, thank you for that question. It's a game changer. Without this 21st century technology, we'd be doing what everyone else is doing. And without those technologies, we're just another company. Now, a lot of companies are using the same technology that we're using, but we try to use it as a seamless deliverable. And what I mean by that is that the use of, let's say, telehealth or telemedicine is not an aside, and it's not an, oh, by the way. What we do, for example, is that when we onboard a patient, it is mandated, unlike some other companies that don't require a patient to be seen eyeball to eyeball. They will do it almost exclusively electronically being done by telephone or computer of whatever form. I don't believe in that. You know, healthcare is still a human to human industry. I don't think we should ever get away from that. I know a lot of people are talking about it. I don't think we should ever get away from that because I don't believe that it will generate the kinds of outcomes that we would like. 
I still think you got to have the warm touch. I had someone ask me when I was presenting my business model, it was an investor uh, or a potential investor. And, and he said, well, what about Mrs. Jones who wants you to have a cup of tea while you're there in the home? You've got all these patients to go see. I said, well, that's not how we see it. If Mrs. Jones asks us about a cup of tea, I'm going to say, well, what, what flavors do you have? Do you have any different flavors? And whatever Mrs. Jones might have, we're going to have a cup of tea. Okay, that's the bottom line. Well, what did we establish? We established a human-to-human -human relationship. Mrs. Jones wants to talk, especially if she's a senior and she doesn't get many people come to the house. She wants, she wants to chat. And we have to be respectful of that. Yeah, it might take some time. And I'll give you a real life example. I, I was shocked when they told me this, but at our patient care center, which is the interface point uh, between our company and, and patients and their family and doctors at the patient care center, our nurse, she, uh, I was talking to her and she said, well, I saw her talking to Mrs. Jones and I didn't realize that two and a half hours had gone by. I said, two and a half hours with Mrs. Jones? She said, yeah. She just wanted to talk and she had a lot of questions. And then a family member came by and she wanted us to talk. And she, so she, she said, I just, I just did. Isn't that what we do? I said, absolutely. But I hope we don't do that for every person. Okay. But two and a half hours talking to Mrs. Jones. Obviously, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm using a fictitious name. But that's what this business is all about. Oh, we hope that it doesn't go to the extreme, but you must do that. Now, on top of that, what we do is we set up Mrs. Jones and her family. We almost always try to have a family member or a caregiver there in the home when we go visit so that we can explain what we're going to do next. What is chronic care management, Dr. Walker? Well, chronic care management is, I know you have diabetes and you have hypertension, but we're going to help you manage it. We're going to look in on you at least once a week. We're going to check you out. And, and then also we're going to send you some equipment. And the equipment is real easy. I don't know how to do use all this technology, Dr. Walker. Yeah, you don't have to know all that sort of stuff. We're going to take care of you. We're going to set it up. And your family will be able, as long as you sign that they are part of the people who can receive your information, we'll let them know what's going on. And what the remote patient monitoring, what all these devices do is allow us to tap into what's going on to all of you, your blood pressure, your weight and all that. And we can monitor it. And if we see something going wrong, we'll give you a call and let you know. And they just love it. The telemedicine visits, that is structured as a quarterly visit for every patient regardless. It's not waiting to see what happens. It's a quarterly visit. So we touch the patient in many different ways as often as we can or as often as the need is. But without technology, none of what we do is really possible. Dr. Walker, I want to stick on the story of Mrs. Jones and continue this example. In your book, there's an entire chapter dedicated to people like Ms. Jones who are in the aging process. And you discussed how there's a much higher percentage of Black people dying 
of heart attacks, cancer, diabetes, and other degenerative diseases. And it seems that much of the geriatric imperative that is facing providers in the U.S. is an ethno-geriatric imperative because one-third of older Americans are projected to be from one of the minority populations by mid-century. And that vastly underrepresents the actual diversity that providers will see. And because we have this vast heterogeneity of culture, language, health beliefs, risk for disease, and other factors, it's critical for policymakers and health providers to be familiar with the diverse characteristics and needs of the various groups that will need geriatric care if they're to receive effective services. And there are some challenges to high-quality ethno-geriatric care that include disparities in health status and health care, differences of acculturation level, other characteristics within the populations like language, limited English proficiency, health literacy, and culturally defined health beliefs and syndromes, as well as specific beliefs, preferences about long-term and end-of-life care. Some models of successful ethno-geriatric care have been identified and have in common the involvement of members of the target population in the development and design of the services. And they use cultural liaisons from the ethnic community being served, like community health workers. How should the US healthcare system meet the challenge of the ethnogeriac imperative in the years to come? Excellent question. It's kind of interesting. And I touched on it previously when I answered the question about the social determinants of health is 80% of one's wellness. The U.S. healthcare market is, I think this year, $4.1 trillion. Now, just the juxtaposition of those two statements really should blow one's mind. 80% of the wellness of any single individual is a function of the social determinants of health. The healthcare expenditures in the United States is $4.1 trillion. 80% of the 4.1 trillion goes to managing disease. That is shocking. So your question is a fundamental one. I've mentioned that we have nurses aides in one of our companies, which is a company that's for uh, CNAs and, and non-licensed aides, but for the most part, they are out on their own. They see patients because they love doing what they're doing, but they, they do it by onesies and twosies, and they don't have any umbrella of a salary. They don't have any umbrella of being an employee of an organization that's going to look after them. They're sort of out there, and thank goodness that they're there doing the things that the rest of us can't do. But guess what? Where is the mechanism to pay these people? It doesn't exist. It's a huge hole in the model. And what we're doing and what we've done is we're still trying to figure this part out. How can we get them? Our goal is to get them under the umbrella of our organization as a valued member of the team where we are taking care of them as a valued employee. Now, if they want to be an independent, we are working, we're working that out too, just like what we do with the independent providers. But our goal is you have to have more than just the high-level educated population in order to service the individuals. And the individuals that are going into these homes on a daily basis really need to understand what is the culture of 
those individuals. For a year and a half, I was the chief of operations of a Hasidic organization in Rockland County, New York. And one of the things that I learned is that there's no difference between that Hasidic population and the families in that Hasidic population than there was in the community in which I grew up in Spanish Harlem. I mean, none. Everybody wants the same thing. The common denominators of healthcare is what is it that I need to stay well and how do I get my medication and what can I do? And so what we have to do is be sensitive to the community. Now, a while back, I was asked a question about the implicit bias and that there were studies that are coming out that basically say that in order for a person to maximize the quality of care that they're going to get, that the provider has to look like you. And, and I sort of rail against that because that's the least common denominator of care. And if you're talking about the African-American population, that means we will never achieve equity because there are not enough of us that look like me that can reach all the patients who are in the African-American community. So therefore, it is inherently a failure. The issue is you have to train people to be sensitive and understand people that don't look like you. So now you have the training to be able to deliver the best quality care that you can, given the circumstances, and then complement the high-level professionals with those who are from the community, we're now calling them navigators, who can bridge the gap between that high-level degree professional and the person who's going in to care for that individual on a daily basis. If you take somebody from the community and you train them and you take care of them economically, we all wanna be safe in our workplace and know that at the end of the day, we have something. They would like to be able, you know, a nurse's aide would like to be able to go on vacation for a couple of weeks and not have any income or don't know how they're gonna return back and if they're gonna have any money. Most of them are sole proprietors going from day to day, a day-to-day -day existence. That just can't work. So your question is a fundamental one of how do we bridge all these gaps and embrace the entire community. One of the things that we've done is we're about to bring on a community organizer here in Houston and she's a community organizer for a community that's known as the Third Ward, predominantly African-American, a high level of seniors. And what she does, they, they just love her. And when I told her about what we were doing, she was just so excited. And she started telling people in the community, and they just can't wait. But what we're doing is we're trying to structure it so we don't get overwhelmed by so many patients that we can't take care of them. We're structuring it so that we can have an, an, an ease of entry into that market. But as a community organizer, we said to her, we have to have the people who are from the community surround the patients 
with the capability so that we're not gonna drop the ball in being able to care for this population because they already don't trust the healthcare community. You can't afford to drop the ball, not on one patient. If you do, that is going to send a signal to the community and they're gone. And if we go back to COVID-19, we know that the best thing that people can do in a population is get the vaccine. Well, which population was least likely to get the vaccine? African-Americans. Why? They don't trust you. We, we have this history. And unfortunately, the history is beginning to get in our way where we are more cognizant of the history than we are the science of today. But the bottom line is, do I trust you? The answer is no. And so if we can bridge that gap with people from the community and they deliver the message, it's a whole new ballgame. Well, Dr. Walker, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. And as we wrap up our interview, I, I thought it would be appropriate to reflect on the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, there was a quote that you referenced in your book, which I'm very fond of, and it is as follows. Of all the forms of inequality, injustice and health is the most shocking and inhumane. And, you know, Dr. Walker, it seems like there's such a moral imperative within medicine to address the existential nature of humanity through the provision of health. However, traditional medicine often focuses too myopically at a disease condition without further exploring the contribution of people and the role that they play in, in, in actively solving for their own health issues. And traditional medicine, every condition seems to be thought of as a separate, isolated disease without the interactions of the body's conditions and surrounding environments also. And I know you're a proponent of functional medicine where patients and practitioners work together to address the underlying cause of disease and promote optimal wellness, as you've been describing over the last hour. Um, you know, just I wanted to ask you if you could provide some parting thoughts to our listeners on empowerment and how providers can work more collaboratively, collaboratively with their patients uh, to really um, create an uh, uh, improved population health in this new era of value-based care delivery. would love to hear your insights on that. Uh, uh, Eric, thank you. Uh, yes, the uh, uh, one of the reasons why I uh, progressed to functional medicine is that I, 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 um, I saw it as a more holistic approach to an individual where we look at every aspect of what the individual is about and what we can do for them with them. And it, it's not about me uh, telling Mrs. Jones, if you will, Mrs. Jones, this is what you need and then uh, move on. It's about getting Mrs. Jones to really understand what we are talking about. And uh, again, the opposite word is we. We are talking about. Uh, what I need to do as a provider in my company, this is what we teach. Uh, we need to listen to Mrs. Jones. Well, what is Mrs. Jones really saying when she's, when she's talking? 
Is she saying the things that we get bored to hear? Well, she's 89 years old and she just wants to talk. Yeah, but what is she saying between the lines? What's the context of what she's saying? Is she afraid? Is she depressed? Is she lonely? All those things contribute to Mrs. Jones's well-being. And as healthcare providers, we must understand the human need. And that human need, is, it's not superficial. It's not in a pill. It's the relationship of one human to another. And as healthcare providers, that is essential. And just again, for functional medicine, functional medicine teaches you to dig deep into what are the drivers for Mrs. Jones' health? What are the ramifications from a genetic perspective, from a historical perspective? Let's look at the whole patient and everything that Mrs. Jones is about. And that's where medicine has to be. Um, functional medicine is the new kid on the block, but it is, um, uh, it is where we really need to be if we're thinking about the whole person and doing the right thing for any one individual as well as the population in order for us to achieve the equity and minimize the disparity for any group. It doesn't matter whether they're Black, Brown, Native American, seniors, any person, any group is deserving of the best we can do as from one human being to another. And I just happen to be a doctor. And uh, if you can get that out of the way, and, and that's not minimizing what we do, but sometimes it gets, that title gets in the way of really hearing what's being said from that other person. It's all about the human interaction and the love of one human for another. Well, Dr. Walker, I couldn't think of a better way to end this week's episode and our great conversation is just really getting to the heart of medicine, which is that human relationship and the bond that providers have with their patients. And together, you know, we can do this. It, it takes a village to make value-based care happen. And I, I want to thank you again for, for leading that effort on a national level in terms of thought leadership, and then also in your local community there in Houston and building a practice, which is really an exemplar for those that are really looking for a great example of uh, value-based care delivery. Um, again, such a pleasure to be with you this week, and uh, I, I hope we can do it again sometime. Gentlemen, thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, uh, before I go, I, I just have to put this plug in. This plug is for your parent organization, WGU, which is really uh, standing up and setting an example as a lighthouse to the rest of the academic world and the rest of healthcare. As if you want to know how to do it, Take a look at what they're doing at WGU and all the um, deliverables that they're putting out there in the marketplace, the Institute, the podcast, everything. You guys are doing a fantastic job. And I really appreciate the vision that your organization has. And thank you for inviting me.
Dr. Walker, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure and we've appreciated your contributions to, to our work and having you as a guest on the podcast and a contributor to the curriculum and uh, look forward to continued collaboration with you. Thank you, gents. 